Chapter 1 of The Story of George Fox by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Richard Vogel, The Drayton Boy. George Fox was born in the little hamlet of Fenny Drayton, which is autobiography the journal calls Drayton in the Clay, on the western edge of Leicestershire, England, in the year 1624. 275 years ago, when George was a youth, the country about Drayton formed a narrow strip of low, undrained, clay-formed fenland, with lines of hills running north and south, both on the east and on the west of the hamlet. Bosworth Field, where Henry of Richmond plucked the English crown from the head of Richard III, lies close to Fenny Drayton, and only two or three miles away is the old town of Nuneaton, where George Eliot was born. All the region about Nuneaton is thick, with scenes made memorable in the early stories of this famous novelist, who was very unlike the George who was born in nearby Drayton. The actual house in which George Fox was born has fallen into ruins and disappeared, though the church, where he went every week as a boy, still stands but little changed in the almost three centuries that have passed. The solemn yew trees in the yard in front of the church look very much as they did when the tiny baby was brought there to be christened in 1624. The old manor house of the Drayton Squires, the noted Purefoy family, is also much the same as when the quiet, meditative boy watched the aristocratic family with their boys and girls come through their private door into the little church where he was sitting. While we are trying to imagine the Drayton Church with its Norman doorway, the two aisles and chancel, and its monuments to the famous Purefoys, we may as well try to think at the same time what the sermons were like in those distant days. While little George was growing up from childhood to youth, England was becoming every year more strongly Puritan. England had a hundred years before, in the time of the Reformation, broken away from the old historic Roman Catholic Church and had established its own English Church, with the king at its head in place of the Pope. But the new church was too much like the old one to suit some of the men and women of England. There were persons in all parts of the country who wanted a great many more changes made. These people wanted to have the church purified so that it would be more like the church which they thought Christ had meant to create in the world. These stout Puritans not only wanted to change the church, they also desired to change the state so that there would be more freedom and greater liberty for everybody. It seemed to them that James I, and still more, Charles I, the new Stuart kings who came from Scotland to the throne after Queen Elizabeth, were taking away the hard-won rights and privileges of the English people. When George Fox was 18 years old, the Puritan party came into open conflict with the king, and a great civil war was begun on the green fields of England between the Puritan forces and the Royalist forces. 
Two years before the beginning of the Civil War, 1640, a new minister had come to the Drayton Church to preach to the people of the hamlet. His name was Nathaniel Stevens. He was 34 years old, a fine scholar from Oxford, and a strong Puritan who knew exactly what he believed. Like most of the Puritan ministers of the time, he preached very long sermons and prayed long prayers. When he began to preach, he started an hourglass running, and when the sand had all run out, he turned it again and went right on preaching, without thinking how tired the little boy's legs were in the hard pews. Like all the other Puritan ministers then, he preached almost every Sunday about Adam's fall and the sin, guilt, and wickedness of all men, women, and children in the world. He made life seem dark, sad, and hard. He told his hearers in the Drayton Church over and over again that God had chosen some people to be saved and some people to be lost, that even little children would be lost if they were not elected to be saved, and then they would suffer forever and ever in hell with the wicked fallen angels. Priest Stevens, as George always calls him, could talk for hours at a time of the way of escape from the city of destruction to the celestial city, about which Bunyan wrote. And everybody learned to know what he was going to say as they heard him read his text from the great Bible on his pulpit desk. George, even while he was still very young, did not enjoy these sermons. They did not seem to him to fit what Jesus said in the Gospels. He did not believe that God ever chose anybody to be lost. He did not think that it was Adam who made people do wrong. If they sinned, it was their own fault. He could not see that these long sermons which the Puritan preacher gave them every Sunday made the people of Fenny Drayton any better or more Christ-like than they were before they heard his sad, solemn, tedious talk. But even if George did not believe all that Priest Stephen said in his long hourglass sermons, and did not enjoy hearing so much about Adam and sin and elected and lost, at least these sermons set him to thinking, made him a quiet, solemn boy, and started him off on a new track, so that in the course of time, as we shall see, he became a new kind of hero. The father and mother of George Fox were poor, humble, hard-working people, but they were brave, upright, and good. The father's name was Christopher, whom the neighbors called Righteous Christer, because he was absolutely straight and honest in his dealings. He was a weaver and worked with his hand loom in the little cottage where George was born. His mother's name was Mary Lago, who came from a family that already had its list of martyrs. She was different from the other women in Drayton, more educated and more finely cultivated, and though her surroundings were hard and mean, and her days were full of work. She was pure, lovely, and noble-minded. And she knew how to understand, help, and direct her unusual boy. His mother died in 1664 when George Fox was 50 years old. When the news of her death reached him, 
He went to a room in the inn where he was staying and sat alone in the stillness and thought of all her life had meant to him. As he sat alone with his sorrow and knew that he could never see his mother again on earth, suddenly he seemed to see her still alive with God in the eternal world, and he says, everlastingly with me over all. I did verily love her as ever one could a mother, is his simple, beautiful word about her, for she was a good, honest, virtuous, right-natured woman, as had been the case with Martin Luther a 150 years earlier. Here again was just the right kind of home and the fitting kind of father and mother to produce a new prophet who could be a leader of men. George was an odd, strange boy. He did not play games like other boys. He lived apart, wandered about alone, shy, grave, and thoughtful, always wondering. William Penn, who later knew him better than almost anyone, says, From a child, he appeared of another frame of mind than the rest of his brethren, being more religious, inward, still, solid, and observing beyond his years. He asked many questions and often sat alone thinking and thinking. His great desire, even as a little boy, was to be pure and good, and he seems to have succeeded, for he says in his journal, When I came to eleven years of age, I knew pureness and righteousness. The thing which made him most different from the other people around him was that he was so unusually honest about everything he did. He seems to have got this trait from both his father and his mother. He never could pretend. He would not act as though he knew, unless he really did know. He would not make believe he had something, unless, in very fact, he had it. Even as a little boy, he hated sham more than he hated anything else on earth. He was resolved that if he was going to live at all, he would live a sincere life. We shall see that whatever else he is doing, he is always trying to be genuine. While still hardly more than a boy, he went to work for a man who was a shoemaker by trade. This shoemaker also kept sheep and cattle, and George not only learned to cut out leather and to sew and peg shoes, but he also tended the sheep, washed and sheared them, and helped sell the wool in the market. His work with the sheep took him out into the fields and pastures, where he was alone with nature, and where he learned to love everything God had made, and to feel himself, as he puts it, in unity with the creation. Nature, in the fields and hills and sky, seemed to him full of beauty and order. What he could not understand was why men's lives were not more beautiful and orderly as God meant them to be. He wondered over this problem more than anything else. Why, he asked again and again, are people so light and wanton? What makes them so hard and unkind to one another and to God's creatures? Why should they love to do wrong and spoil life, which was intended to be always fair and joyous and beautiful? Priest Stevens kept saying in his sermons that it was all because Adam sinned, and the world was ruined by the fall. But when the minister told him how to escape from sin and how to be saved from it, 
Why didn't they stop sinning and become pure and good? They acted as though they supposed that it was enough just to listen to the sermons without doing anything more or without changing their lives in any way. Religion was thus like having money put away in a bank and never using it. It seemed to George to be something that you heard about and talked about in a church, but not something that made any difference in the way you lived after you went home from church. He had an interesting word for that kind of religious person. He called him a professor. For example, one who professes to believe the things which are preached in church, but who lives in the world exactly as though he did not believe them. One day, all this about which he had long been thinking came sweeping over George's sensitive soul with such a rush that it almost overwhelmed him. He had gone to a market fair in a nearby town, and two professors, one of them being George's cousin, asked him to go with them to an inn and drink beer. The two professors drank many mugs of beer, and when George refused to drink with them, they tried to make him pay for what they drank. It shocked the gentle youth to see two persons who professed to be good Christians guzzling beer and acting as though they had no religion at all. And thereupon he put down a small piece of money and walked out of the inn and left the professors there alone. When he got home to Drayton, he could not get this scene in the inn out of his mind. It seemed to him only a vivid illustration of the way everybody was doing, the world seemed twisted and out of joint. People said one thing and did another. Religion looked like a hollow sham and a thing for show, not for daily practice. Poor, honest-hearted, pure-minded George Fox could not stand the discovery. It crushed his soul and broke his spirit. He could not sleep. He could not eat. He moaned and cried and wandered about alone, trying to understand the strange wilderness world he was in. At length, he decided to leave his home. It seemed as though God had sent him out and to go up and down the land, seeking for light and endeavoring to find some help for his disturbed soul. He went out into the mysterious world, not knowing whither he went, but resolved to see if he could discover anywhere any real religion which made people's lives right and gave them power to live by. End of the Drayton Boy